Hey guys, you're listening to episode 42 of the Finish Line podcast, where we discuss the intersection of faith, generosity, and personal finance. Today we're talking with Brian Fickert, co-author of When Helping Hurts and founder of the Chalmers Center. Welcome to the show. My name is Cody, and I'm here with my co-host and brother, Keelan. We had the chance to sit down with Brian Fickert, co-author of One Helping Hurts and founder of the Chalmers Center for Economic Development. Brian has spent the better part of his career researching and addressing systematic poverty throughout the world and has gathered an incredible amount of insight and experience in the process. We had all kinds of questions about what a truly effective ministry looks like and how we can avoid causing more harm than good. We also had the chance to get into some of the practical ways we as givers can best steward whatever wealth God has given us in how we choose where we give and the relationship we develop with those organizations and ministries. You aren't going to want to miss what Brian has to say. Before we get started, I just wanted to remind you about the Finish Line Sprints. If you've been getting a lot out of this podcast and are looking for a way to take it to the next level, you should consider starting or joining a sprint. A sprint is a guided program for small groups meant to lead you through the overarching biblical themes related to wealth and money, while allowing you to explore the restored freedom and purpose that comes with choosing a financial finish line. The sprint guide is completely free and available on our website at finishlinepledge.com sprint. Sprints are also completely self-led, so you don't need a trained leader or someone who's been through the program before. All you need are a couple friends to get started, so check it out and get a group together today. And with that, let's get started. All right. We're here tonight with Brian Fickert. Brian, thanks so much for joining us tonight. We're really excited to dig into a little bit about your story. Thanks, brothers. It's a joy to be with you and your audience. So why don't you get us started telling us just a little bit about your background and how you got to where you are today? Yeah. Thanks for asking that. I grew up in Wisconsin. My father was a pastor. And from a young age, I felt that I was called to work in the space of poverty. And I think that was partly just the, the influence of my family and some of my relatives and, quite frankly, what the scripture was saying to me. And so life was, has always kind of been about how can I use my gifts, my abilities to work in the space of poverty. I went off to a Christian college, and while I was there, I discovered the field of economics. And I love the field of economics. It's a lot of fun. And I'm very mathematically inclined. And so here is this field that could use math to try to solve the problems of poverty. And so it just seemed like a great match. And when I left that Christian college, my professor said to me, we hope that you'll come back and teach here someday. And I said, I'm not sure exactly what God is calling me to, but I will never, ever teach at a small Christian college. That's not what I'm going to do. Well, don't ever tell God what you're not going to do because it's locked in stone <laughs> that that's what you're going to end up doing. So I went off and in God's grace was able to get a PhD in economics, focusing in international economics, international trade and finance, and economic development in the majority world of Africa, Asia, and Latin America. And when I was finishing graduate school, Covenant College, Lookout Mountain, Georgia, contacted me and said, would you be interested in applying to be a professor here? And I said, I'm really sure that I'll never be a professor at a small Christian college, especially not yours. So that wasn't going to be what I was going to do. I wanted to do global policy work. I wanted to work at a place like the World Bank or something and run around the world kind of affecting macro policy to improve the lives of poor people. 
Well, in God's grace, I took a job at the University of Maryland. I know Cody's from Maryland and just outside of Washington, D.C. And it's a great place to be an economics professor that's interested in poverty because you're so close to Washington. The World Bank is there. The International Monetary Fund is there. I was 20 minutes from the White House. I was always ready for them to call. They never actually called, but I could have been there in 20 minutes. <laughs> it's just a great place. And so I was doing research and some consulting at the World Bank and so on. I was enjoying being a professor. But then the Lord had been working on me for some time, of course. And there's three things that he kind of really brought to the forefront for me. One is I was growing increasingly disenchanted with how economists think of what a human being is and of what poverty is. You know, I was studying India at the time, and economists think of a human being as a fundamentally physical creature. We're just bodies. And it's pretty hard to study poverty in India and think that there's nothing spiritual going on. I thought, this doesn't make any sense. This basic anthropology doesn't make any sense at all. So I was growing increasingly frustrated with that and trying to teach and research and write within that framework. My conscience was actually starting to bother me. I couldn't really do it anymore with any integrity. And then a second thing happened. I was an elder in my church, and I was assigned as the liaison to our deacons. And in our church, the deacons cared for the poor. And I watched our deacons, and they tended to reduce the poor to spiritual creatures, that if they would just repent of their sins, all would be well. I'm not really buying that story either. And so there's a sense in which I'm not really buying the anthropology, if you will, of my profession. I'm not really buying the anthropology of my church. And so I'm kind of caught here. And then one night I was walking through a Christian bookstore, and I'd like to tell you that 40 days of prayer and fasting went into this, brothers, but it was more like, hmm, I think I'll read this book. I was supposed to teach Sunday school, and I grabbed a book off the shelf and said, I think I'll teach this book. And it was a book about the doctrine of the church, about what the church is supposed to be. And in the process of teaching this course, the Sunday school class on the church, I fell in love with the local church. The Bible says the local church is the body and bride and fullness of Jesus Christ. That when people encounter the local church, they're supposed to encounter Jesus Christ himself. And and what I saw in the scriptures was that Jesus was ministering to the whole person, not just to their bodies and not just to their souls, but to their whole being. I thought, this is really great. So Jesus kind of brings together the body and the soul, and he does it through his local church, which continues his mission in the world. And so I just kind of fell in love with that story. And so one afternoon, I was sitting at my desk at the University of Maryland, and I wrote a letter to Covenant College and said, you know, somebody should start a center that would equip churches in more effective strategies for helping the poor, that would equip churches to be what the scriptures called it to be, the very embodiment of Jesus Christ. And I said, somebody should start an undergraduate major that would equip Christian young people to be able to live and work amongst the poor more effectively. I didn't really mean me, or at least not yet. I think I meant like in a decade or something. I don't know what I was thinking. And so Covenant College had come down for an interview. I came down here for an interview. At the end of it, they said, well, what would make you want to come here? And I said, absolutely nothing. There were more. There were more. <laughs> <laughs> I'm from the north. This is the south. There were more economics professors at the University of Maryland then there are faculty as a whole across all the departments at Covenant College. And so Maryland's got 45,000, at least in those days had 45,000 students. Covenant College has about 1,000. And so this was just crazy. But I went back to Maryland and was starting to think and dream about what could this look like. And the truth of the matter is, I didn't really know what I was talking about. But I started dreaming and thinking, and what could this look like? And what might God be saying? And I was enjoying the process of putting it all together. And one day I called my wife from work and I said, what do we do? 
she was crying. She said, I don't want to go there. She said, but God is calling us to go there. We've got to go there. And I said, why? She said, well, because everything about who you are and who you want to be and kind of the way God has wired you, this is the place that you can do that. So we came here, I guess it was about 25 years ago now. Again, I didn't really know what I was talking about. Kind of long on vision, short on details. And so, but the college allowed me to start to experiment and try some things. And God brought along a number of people who just really influenced me. And some financial supporters got behind this. And we were able to start this thing called the Chalmers Center, which equips churches and parachurch ministries, missionaries, and actually financial supporters as well, in more effective strategies to work amongst the poor. And we've been able to also start an undergraduate program in economics and community development where we're training Christian young people to live and work amongst the poor as well. And so, so thankful for God's story in our lives and just feel so blessed to have been part of this. And it's been a learning journey. Boy, I really didn't know what I was doing and have made 10,000 mistakes. But God's been faithful and he's shown up and he's made some cool things happen. But it's mostly because, well, it's all because he's been faithful. It's been pretty clear since day one that I didn't really know what I was talking about. And so it's just been a learning journey. And most of my writing is really just a diary of things that people are teaching me. Well, Brian, it's so impressive. The thought that was behind your observation that people are not just physical bodies and people are not just spiritual. It's all of it together. And how do you take care of a person? How do you provide for the needs of people and to not only identify that, but then to go on and do something about it is so needed. And I'm really interested to hear more about how the Chalmers Center came together and specifically what kind of work that you're able to do through that. Yeah. So our full title is the Chalmers Center for Economic Development at Covenant College. I'm a Presbyterian. Everything's long, long-winded, long titles. <laughs> and so by economic development, we mean helping the poor to be able to work and support themselves through that work and glorify God in the process. And so we start asking questions, how can we help churches to help materially poor people to be able to work and to engage in sustaining work that glorifies God? And so internationally, we started working in the space of microfinance and microenterprise development, and, and God brought me a gentleman named Russ Mask who had a lot of experience in this area, and he really has had a tremendous influence on me, and he started out with saying, let's focus on the assets that poor people have. And one of the assets that poor people have is they can actually save. What well, I thought was crazy. And he said, no, the poorest people in the world can really save. And so let's try to do microfinance using the savings of poor people. And so we started piloting this with churches in Kenya and the Dominican Republic and the Philippines. And we basically helped churches to help very poor people. In fact, the churches themselves were often themselves very poor. We help churches to promote what are called savings and credit associations, or sometimes just savings groups, in which basically poor people come together each week and they save and lend their own money to one another. It's sort of like a very small, very primitive credit union, if you will. It's owned and managed by poor people themselves using their own money. And so there's no outside capital. There's no outside management. You're really just helping poor people to start their own very small, very primitive, very simple credit union. And we very much wanted the verbal articulation, the gospel to be part of that in a discipleship process. And so we developed a whole curriculum about how do you form a savings and credit association? How do you make it function? All centered on answering questions of stewardship, helping people understand who they are as image bearers, 
And so it's not just about money, it's about whole person discipleship and so on, human development. And so we start piloting that. Everybody thought we were crazy. We thought we were crazy. But God blessed that and has really enabled that to take off. And we've been able to equip a number of other organizations. We're small. We kind of work through others. And so we've been able to equip other organizations to take this basic model and scale it at levels we never could. So one of those organizations is Hope International. We've also worked with Five Talents. Right now, we're working with Compassion International and Tier Fund. And so we're kind of always looking for others to scale our work. In the U.S., we've done a lot in the space of jobs preparedness training, helping people get off of welfare and into the workforce, get jobs, also financial education, financial literacy training, how to manage and steward your own resources. But in the process of doing all of those things, God was teaching us some core principles that were at the core of how we were designing all of these economic development strategies. And we started to try to articulate just those core principles to people. And that took on a life of its own that we were not anticipating. So a number of years ago, I guess it's about a decade ago now, we released a book called When Helping Hurts, How to Alleviate Poverty Without Hurting the Poor and Yourself. And we meant that as a little bit of a side project, quite frankly. We had a lot of people coming to us for all kinds of equipping and training. And we just wanted to focus on microfinance and job preparedness training and financial literacy, all these economic development strategies. And people were coming to us with all kinds of questions about, you know, veterinary missions and all this stuff. And we're like, how do we get rid of these people? So we, we, we decided to write a book that we'd sort of hurl at people and say, here, read this book and leave us alone. And God, it wasn't quite like that, but it was kind of like that. And so God had, a, God had another plan, of course. And so it took, turned out that he wanted to use that book to equip churches and Christian ministries around the world in core principles of poverty alleviation. And so now, in addition to our economic development strategies, we find ourselves in the space of just equipping people with just general principles of poverty alleviation that they can use in any sector, if they're in healthcare or agriculture or housing or education, doesn't matter what it is. There's some core principles that are useful in any sector. And so we're kind of, to summarize, doing two things. We're equipping people in economic development, but then we're also equipping people in basic principles they can use in any kind of ministry that they're involved with. Yeah. And when Helping Hurts has certainly had a massive impact, I'd be probably not wrong in saying that it may be one of the most foundational books that there is in poverty alleviation and, and in guiding organizations and individuals in approaching that topic. I would guess that many of our listeners have read the book or at least have heard of it. But for those who haven't, do you think you could break down some of the core principles or points that you wanted to get across when you guys put that together? Yeah, certainly. You know, one of the motivations for writing it was that we saw people who had good intentions, but were actually doing a lot of harm amongst people who were poor. There's kind of a funny dynamic in the kind of Bible-believing church in America. Many of us are very critical of the federal government's welfare programs. Many of us say the federal government's creating all kinds of dependencies. And yet we go and we make the same mistakes the federal government does all the time in our own ministries, in our churches, in our own individual giving and behaviors. And so we just saw a lot of people who had good intentions who are doing a lot of harm. And at the root of it really is a fundamental misunderstanding of the nature of human beings. And we can talk about it that way, but let me try a little different angle right now. If I ask your listeners, what is poverty? Many Americans would say poverty is a lack of food, a lack of clothing, a lack of money, a lack of housing. 
we tend to define poverty as some lack of physical things. And hence, our solutions tend towards providing physical things, physical resources to people. And certainly there's a role for that. But what's so interesting is if you ask poor people around the world, what is poverty? They will say something like this. I feel less than human. I feel shame. I feel like I can't affect change in my life. I feel powerless. I feel socially isolated. I feel less than human. The poor tend to describe their condition in far more psychological and social terms. We tend to define their poverty in material terms. And that disconnect between how we conceive of the problem and how they're experiencing the problem is at the core of the crisis and poverty alleviation. If somebody's feeling shame, somebody's feeling inadequate, somebody's feeling less than human, and I reach in my pocket and hand them a $20 bill, that doesn't solve that problem. That exacerbates that problem. It's not an empowering kind of action. It's an action that says, you're helpless. You can't do anything. You need me to fix you. And so that very act of trying to help can actually undermine the dignity that they're already struggling to experience. And so we try to root our understanding of poverty and what helping hurts in the biblical narrative. And since that, we've built on these concepts in a more recent book called Becoming Whole and an associated field guide. But at the core of this is this idea that human beings aren't just physical and we aren't just spiritual. We're highly integrated physical, spiritual beings, but there's more. The human being is made in the image of God and God is inherently a relational creature from all eternity, Father, Son, and Holy Ghost exist in relationship with one another. God is inherently a relational being. And as his image bears, he's deeply wired us for relationship as well, relationship with God, with ourselves, with others, and with the rest of creation. So we're not just bodies, and we're not just bodies with souls. We're body soul relational thingies. And once you understand that we're body soul relational thingies, it's a game changer. Because when that woman walks into your church asking for help with her electric bill, what we do with her in that moment, how we try to help her, is a function of how we conceive of who she is. The Bible says she's this body, soul, relational thing, creature, that was put into the right habitat for her. She was put into the Garden of Eden. But the fall results in her and all of humanity being cast out of that Garden of Eden, And so really what we're all struggling with is being cast out of the habitat that we're wired for. And so that reframes everything we're going to do. Poverty alleviation is about basically trying to replicate the conditions of the habitat for which we're made, the habitat of Eden. That's a whole different way of thinking about the problem than simply, do I give the dollar to the homeless person or not? That's an important question, but it's so small compared to what we're really facing. What we're really facing is, We're body-soul relational creatures wired for a certain habitat. Because of the fall, we've been kicked out of that habitat. We've got to figure out a way to replicate that habitat again. That's what's really going on. And so all of our work is kind of out of that framework. This is a body-soul relational creature. There's a certain habitat that works for this kind of creature. How can we foster the restoration of that habitat? I wanted to dig in on a couple more things that are talked about and explained really well throughout the book. There's described difference between relief, 
rehabilitation and development that I was hoping you could just reiterate for us. Yeah, terrific. So not all poverty is created equal. It often looks the same, but what's going on underneath is completely different. So here's an example. A tsunami hits Indonesia and wipes out a bunch of homes. And so suddenly a bunch of people are homeless. Well, I can drive down the street here a few blocks from my house, and there's a homeless person staying on the street corner. So both the people in Indonesia and the fellow on the street a few blocks from my house are homeless. They look like they're in the same situation. But of course, their situations are completely different underneath. And so we've got to diagnose what is the cause of them being homeless. And one helpful approach is to distinguish between relief and rehab and development. And so relief is the appropriate response to a crisis, either a man-made crisis or a natural disaster, okay? And so when there's some kind of crisis that hits and a person is desperate and largely unable to help themselves, relief is the appropriate intervention. Relief is a handout. Relief is doing something to people or for people to stop the bleeding, This is not the point of the parable of the Good Samaritan, but it just happens to be a really great illustration that we all know. The Good Samaritan applied relief. There's a dude lying there on the side of the road, bleeding to death, can't help himself. The Good Samaritan bandages his wounds. That's relief. Relief is a handout. It's appropriate in a crisis when a person is desperate and is unable to help themselves. Rehabilitation is what you do after the bleeding has stopped. It's an effort to return the individual or the community that's poor to their pre-crisis conditions. So in the case of the tsunami in Indonesia, once the water has receded and kind of the crisis is over, it's walking with people in Indonesia to help restore them to where they were before the tsunami hit. And the key dynamic is to shift from a two or a four approach that you use in relief, to a with approach. It's asking the people in Indonesia to contribute to their own betterment. And so instead of just a handout, it's saying to people in Indonesia, how can we work with you to rebuild the homes? How can we work with you to restore your businesses? And the reason that we shift from to to with is because of the goal. The goal in poverty is always restoration to image bearing. And part of being an image bearer, part of living in right relationship with God, self, others, and the rest of creation, is to be a steward of your own resources, to be able to affect change in your environment. And so the process of asking people to contribute to their own recovery is a process of asking them to be restored closer to what human flourishing looks like. And so the reason we ask them to help is not because we're a bunch of uptight Republicans. We might be that, I don't know. But that's not why we do it. We do it because we want to restore them to humanness. We want to restore them to be stewards of their communities. And so part of the therapy process, if you will, is actually if you can get people working again, it's actually got its own therapeutic effect because that's what we're wired for. And so the process of asking people to engage with work, to engage with rebuilding, is actually part of their own recovery of their sense of identity in the face of a tragic calamity. So relief, stop the bleeding. Rehab, restore folks to pre-crisis conditions. Development is the hardest one. Development is walking with people 
in such a way that both they and ourselves move to higher degrees of human flourishing than we've ever experienced before. It means walking in such a way that both the materially poor and ourselves live closer to right relationship with God, with ourselves, with others, and with the rest of creation. Again, it's a with process. It's a saying to a person or to a community, what are your gifts and your resources? How can you bring those to bear in the situation? How can we walk with you in that process? Usually there's some kind of project or goal you're trying to achieve. It might be digging wells, or it might be building a school. The key thing here is that you want to use an empowering process. So it's not just that the well gets dug. How the well gets dug is profoundly important. You want to do it in such a way that there's local ownership, local buy-in, local effort, as opposed to just the most efficient way of going and drill the well. So relief, rehab, and development. The key takeaway here is this. Most poor people in the world are not in a crisis. They're actually in a chronic condition. And so we don't need to go from relief to rehab to development with most people. With most people, they're in a chronic condition. They're not in a crisis. They have something they can contribute to their own improvement. And so development is the right intervention. The problem is that most of us do relief. We do things to people and for people. We give things away. We use methods that are appropriate for a post-tsunami situation in situations that are not post-tsunamis. And it creates all kinds of dependencies. It undermines human dignity. It undermines the use of local resources. That's the primary problem in poverty. We do relief in context in which development is the right intervention. One of the things you've alluded to on a couple of occasions is this idea of assessing the assets that a community already has. And I think you mean by that both the financial assets, but also the resources of skills and labor and other relational types of assets. Can you flush out a little bit more about what that looks like, how that is executed well, and how that contributes to the community flourishing? Yeah. So I want to go back a little bit to Genesis chapter one. So again, we are body, soul, relational creatures. And what happens in Genesis chapter three is the fall happens. All of us are experiencing brokenness in our relationships with God, with ourselves, with others, with with the rest of creation. One of the key dynamics that's so difficult in the space of poverty alleviation is that materially poor people, their broken relationship with self is typically one of shame. We might call it a marred identity, a sense of inferiority. The flip side of it is that those of us who have material resources Our broken relationship with ourself tends towards pride, tends towards what some would have called a God complex. We think we're uniquely anointed to bring our wisdom, our knowledge, to save the rest of the world, and especially poor people. So our starting point is that I'm up here, and the poor are down there, and that I'm called to fix them. And so that's a really bad dynamic, because when I rush in and I take over, I communicate the very thing that's crushing the poor. Their sense they can't do anything. And so that dynamic, that God complex marred identity dynamic is at the core of why so many approaches to poverty alleviation really don't work very well. 
And it's particularly difficult if we have a material definition of poverty. Poverty is a lack of stuff. Because if you have a material definition of poverty, then I'm okay. I've got the stuff. You're not okay because you don't have the stuff. I'm superior. You're inferior. And I have what you need. In my pocket, I've got the solution for you. And so the entire setup is a disaster. What a needs-based approach does is it exacerbates the disaster. A needs-based approach says, we want to start a ministry. Let's go find out what's wrong with people. Let's go find out how broken they are. So we, we walk around in poor communities and we say to poor people, what's wrong with you? What do you need? And so the starting question, we think it's a question of empathy. And of course, at one level it is. But we're starting off with, What's wrong with you? And the assumption is that you're broken, and I'm not broken, and I've got what you need, and I'm going to fix you. So the whole dynamic is, I am the solution to you. Just sort of give me your laundry list of needs, and I will meet those needs. It's a disaster for overcoming this God-complex, smart identity dynamic. An asset-based approach starts off not with Genesis chapter 3, but with Genesis chapter 1. It doesn't start with the fall. It starts with creation. The assumption in an asset-based approach is that God has placed good things in every community and in every poor person. The fall has certainly distorted that, but the good is still there because Christ sustains the whole thing, right? And so you can have a sense of hope, a sense of discovering the good that's here. And so an asset-based approach says to low-income people, what gifts and abilities do you have? Let's list the gifts and abilities and resources that you have. What are your goals? What are your dreams? What can you do to use your gifts and abilities to achieve your goals and your dreams? What obstacles might you face? How can we walk with you in the process to help you overcome those obstacles? And so the key dynamic in an asset-based approach is not to figure out what's wrong, but you start off actually by identifying the gifts that God has placed in the community, connecting those gifts and resources, and they can be physical, they can be financial, they can be relational, they can be spiritual, connect those resources and then mobilize them. And so the key task is actually helping people discover what they've got and who they are as image bearers. The very question, what gifts and abilities do you have? What dreams do you have? Those two questions are foreign to most poor people around the world. Their tribe, their gender, their race has been told for hundreds of years, you're less than human, you're cursed. You have nothing to contribute. So to say to a person who feels crushed, beaten down, what gifts do you have? It's an unleashing. The question itself is part of poverty alleviation. It's helping people discover, oh, they're an image bearer. Now, sometimes they won't even know what gifts they have. And so you have to ask their neighbor, what gifts do you think Susie's got? Get the neighbors bragging about each other. Get them telling the story of beauty about each other. I've seen this done many times. People start to sit up a little straighter in their seats. Oh, I'm somebody here. People around me think I got some gifts. Get people bragging about each other. People sing a new tune in people's ears. You are somebody because you're an image bearer. Christ is restoring you. 
You're not a nobody. You're not less than human. You bear the image of God Almighty. It's getting that tune sung in the ear 24-7 that's at the core of poverty alleviation. And so it's a completely different approach. Now, it's not an I'm okay, you're okay approach. The problems are there. The problems are real. But the approach is let's figure out what you've got. How can you use that to achieve your goals? How can you use those gifts to overcome your problems? There is a space for bringing in outside resources when the local resources are inadequate. But those outside resources should only be brought in when they complement the internal resources rather than crush them. Brian, I love how that just adds so much color to this situation. It's it's not as simple as those who have more than they need to give it to those who have less than they need. It's so much more complex than that and should be treated as such. Have you seen any examples of organizations that do this process well? Yeah, there's a number that come to mind. I really like an organization called Reconciled World. Reconciled World, kind of their theory of change, be very consistent with all the things we're talking about here and that we talk about in our books. I think very highly of them. I think very highly of Tier Fund, which is headquartered in the United Kingdom. They work all over the world, but they have just started a U.S. office. They're doing great work. In the space of microfinance, I think very highly of a number of organizations, Hope International, of course, Seed Effect, headquartered in Dallas, is doing some great work. Five Talents out of the Virginia area, doing some great work. And of course, the Chalmers Center is doing some great work. (laughs) (laughs) So if you can use any one of those organizations as an example for what this process looks like, maybe a specific community or region that they are targeting and how they kind of implement some of these ideas. Yeah. Let me choose Reconciled World as an example. And so Reconciled World would say, Satan has embedded lies in every culture. I completely agree with this perspective. Satan has embedded lies in every culture. Those lies work themselves into the systems in those cultures. Those lies work themselves into the practices in the cultures. And those lies become embedded in the people who live in those cultures. One of the primary lies that Satan has woven into many poor cultures around the world comes out of the worldview of traditional religion. Traditional religion, it's often called animism, teaches that the world is basically controlled by spiritual forces and that anything that happens in the material realm is due to spirits that could be personal spirits, ancestral spirits, they could be more like a force, they could be demons. But there's this whole sort of array of spiritual forces that run the material world. And so human beings in those settings tend not to see themselves as having a lot of agency. They don't see themselves, you know, the proper relationship to creation is to be the steward of creation, to have dominion over creation. In the traditional worldview, the human being isn't actually any different from a tree. The entire material realm is dominated by the spiritual realm. And so the goal isn't dominion. The goal isn't cultivation. It's not development. It's not the cultural mandate of Genesis 1, 28 and 29 to be fruitful and multiply, increase in numbers, subdue the earth. In the worldview of traditional religion, it's hunker down. Don't get any of these spirits upset. Don't create disharmony. Don't plow the ground too much because somebody might get mad. It's kind of a don't upset the equilibrium that we have with the spiritual realm kind of worldview. And so 
what Reconciled World tries to do is to help people to understand the truths of God's story. Creation, fall, redemption, consummation. It's the only story that's actually true. And in that story, human beings in creation are given dominion over the created order. And so part of what Reconciled World does is communicate that biblical truth. You're not a tree. God has placed you to have stewardship over the trees. He's given you authority over the natural world. And so it's partly a worldview transformation. And then you've got to communicate that God is in control over the spiritual forces. So we don't want to say the demons aren't real because the Bible says they are real. And so we don't want to say you're all a bunch of superstitious people. We want to say, well, you know, there might not be a demon behind every tree, but there's certainly some floating around out there. And Christ is Lord of all of them. He sends the demons into the pigs and they go over the edge of the cliff. Christ is Lord of all. And so Christ gives you power. Christ has power over the demons. We don't have to be afraid. He has more power than they have. And Christ is restoring you. The fall happened to you. So we have to get to the fall. The fall happened to you. And the fall happened to all of creation. But Christ is risen from the dead. And he's made you a new creature in Christ. And he's restoring you. He's given you your job back. And so through his power, to the power of Christ's death and resurrection, you can once again get your old job back of having dominion. And you can plow the fields. And you can plant the corn. And you can harvest it. And God's going to be faithful. And so it's narrating the story. And then as you're narrating the story, you're saying to people, what gifts and abilities do you have? God has placed you over steward of creation. Let's map out all the assets in this village. What do we have in this village? Let's map it all. Let's, let's write it all down. What gifts and resources do we have? What do you think God would call you to do with those gifts and resources? All right, he's placed you in charge. He's walking with you. He's faithful. He's present. He's not left you alone. He's got power of the demons. He makes the crops grow. Let's press into that truth. And so it's a story. It's a story of creation, fall, redemption, walking with God, expecting him to show up as you try to help people to use the resources that God has placed at their disposal. It's like that. And so how does that play out over, I assume, working with a community like that for months or years, walking through that process? They take ownership of their own progress. They start to look around and go, gee, what's missing here? One of their videos on their website, I love that, this video, they needed a bridge built. There's this huge ravine. They need to get across this ravine all the time to their crops, but they couldn't get across it because there's no bridge. Well, they looked around and said, why don't we build a bridge? And so they built this just on their own. They built this ridiculous bridge using their own know-how and their own resources. The government looked at it and said, how did you do that? Who taught you? And they said, no, we just knew how. We just did it. And so the government uses them as consultants. This village in, I can't tell the country, but it's a close-access country. The government uses them as consultants to help other villages to build bridges. And so they just figure it out that God's given them wisdom, given them knowledge, Maybe one of them got a degree somewhere. I don't know. But they figured out they could build this bridge. And they built this bridge. And now they've got a couple hours more of work time per day. because They're not having to drive all the way around this ravine. They can just get across the bridge. Local resources. Quite frankly, some of the stories that Reconciled World tells are miraculous in nature. Of God showing up and making crops grow. So much that in one closed access country... The government has sent researchers to figure out why are these villages flourishing. They sent all these researchers in, 
And they said, why are the villages flourishing? And they came back and the, the researchers said, it's because of the book they read. The book is the Bible. The Bible tells them that they're in charge. And so they started planting more and harvesting more because the Bible told them they're in charge. Well, the government couldn't accept that. So it sent a bunch of other researchers in. And they came back and they said, why are the villages prospering? And the researchers said, it's because of their God. They worship this God And as they worship this God, he leads them through the Bible what to do. And then their God shows up and blesses their crops. They live into the story. It's creation, fall, redemption, consummation. They teach people to live into that story. And they plant more. They build bridges. They build roads. They're actively developing the created order because that's what we're made to do. And then God shows up and walks with them in the process. And stuff happens. And what I love about those examples that you just shared is that really, you know, the presence of any whatever organization or nonprofit or entity like that that's coming in externally is really kind of fading out of that story as you like in those stories that you just told, that's all about the community. It's not about anybody else from the outside. And not only are those communities flourishing, but they're overflowing into the rest of their country or their region or or the nearby villages, like the bridge building community going around. And as that story of or the redemption of Christ is the foundation of that, that goes out with them as they continue to bless the That's other totally communities. It. That's totally it. Because of the nature of this country, the outside organization actually couldn't get to the villages very often. And it, it almost ended up being like a natural experiment or a government-imposed experiment. They were able to get in there to do some initial training. They couldn't get there anymore. And so the people in the, the churches took the training and said, oh, let's just live this story out. That seems like a better story. They just started living that story out of God's story. And the church pastors, it's so interesting, they've said things like, when the missionaries first came, they taught us how to get our soul saved, but they didn't tell us how to live Monday through Saturday. We didn't know the full story. So we're just sitting around here waiting for Jesus to come back because we got our soul saved, secure to go to heaven, but nobody told us how to live Monday through Saturday. Reconciled World told us the story of Monday through Saturday. So we just started doing that, and it works. And so it's changing the narrative for people. Well, Brian, I want to get practical for a minute and talk about what this means for us as individuals. And obviously, in the way that we give, you can look for organizations that are doing this. Well, you just mentioned several of them, but I think it goes a little deeper than that. If you're thinking about what is best for others and how do I participate in that? So can you just talk a little bit about how we can apply these in the way that we give and the way that we live? Yeah. So, yeah, I think financial supporters have one of the most difficult jobs in the whole world. I really do. I mean, how on earth are you supposed to steward these financial resources? How are you supposed to find an organization that you can trust, that you can give your money to, and you don't want to be the know-it-all, and you don't really know it all, but you want to kick the tires, right? And so it's just really, really hard. And so I serve on the board of a Christian foundation called First Fruit. And so I get to sit on the other side of the relationship and I get to see what that looks like from the financial supporter's perspective. And it's just profoundly difficult. It's just very, very hard. And so I think there's a couple things. So we all want metrics. We all want measures. We all want to see impact. And my training is actually as an applied statistician. I haven't gotten to do much of that lately, but 
I love metrics. I love measures. I love all that. And I think we should look for impact metrics and all those kinds of things. But the reality of it is, it's just really hard. I mean, I don't think there's a donor listening to this podcast that would have given Jesus a second grant. I mean, think of this guy. He ministers for three years, and he only helps 12 people. And one of them betrays him. He ends up dying on a cross. What did the guy accomplish in three years? Well, the reconciliation of the entire cosmos is a pretty productive three years. But you wouldn't have known it at the end of the three years. He's hanging there on a cross. It doesn't look like he's had a lot of impact. He claimed he was king of kings and lord of lords. And it seems like he got nothing done. And so I think it's pretty hard to measure impact. It's pretty hard to know if you're being successful. I'm increasingly looking more at the front end. Is the organization living into God's story? Is it designed in such a way that seems consistent with how God typically works in the world? And so I believe in impact assessment, trying measurement on the back end and so on. But I'm increasingly finding myself looking more at the front end. Do I believe that the way they're designing this ministry is consistent with God's story or theory of change, if you will? And so this is going to sound like a commercial. I'm sorry, but yeah, I got to say it. So I was under contract. So when Helping Hurts came out and we wrote a number of derivative books, Helping on Hurting Church Benevolence, Helping on Hurting in Short-Term Missions and so on. And I was under contract to do one more book for Moody Publishers before I could marry Rachel instead of Leah. And I had to do one more book. <laughs> the book was supposed to be entitled Helping Without Hurting and Giving. And it was basically trying to say to financial resource supporters, if when helping hurts is true, how do you figure out where to give your money to? So it was really a book to answer the question you're asking me right now. How are we supposed to do this thing? And it didn't work. Every time I tried to write that book, I would get to about chapter two or three, and I just got stuck. Because I realized was that we really hadn't articulated an overall theory of change to make the book make sense. So donors kind of want the checklist of, you know, 10 things or something. Yeah, I can give you a checklist of 10 things to look for, but you need wisdom. You need more than just a checklist of 10 things. And I realized that we really need to step back and articulate God's story of change because the reality of it is poverty alleviation is about change. It's about helping people who are in one situation to get to a better situation. And what's going on in the space of poverty is there's not a common theory of change. So by theory of change, I mean, what is the goal and how are you going to get there? What's the goal and how are you going to get there? And the reality of it is poor people have a particular theory of change that they're living into. The ministry that's working with them has a theory of change, sometimes articulated, sometimes not, but they've got some sense of what the goal is and how to get there. And the financial supporters, and usually there's, you know, not just one, you've got maybe hundreds for this ministry. The financial supporters have got their own theory of change. Well, how is it supposed to work? We've all got these different theories of change. How are we supposed to figure out who to give to when the donors got one theory of change, the ministry's got another one, and the poor people got another one? We're not on the same page. And I think that's actually at the core of so much of what's wrong in the space of poverty alleviation. We're not working off the same script. We don't have the same theory of change. We don't have a sense of what the good life is and how to get there. 
And so what we did, so I kind of gave up on writing Help and Hurting and Giving, and I got a theologian involved named Kelly Capic, who's a brilliant Trinitarian theologian. And we've written a book called Becoming Whole, Why the Opposite of Poverty Isn't the American Dream, and an associated field guide. The field guide has 20 ministry design principles. And so basically, Becoming Whole articulates several faulty theories of change that are extremely common in the space of poverty alleviation. They're extremely common amongst the financial supporters. We try to articulate what's wrong with those theories of change. Then we try to communicate what the scriptures seem to suggest are God's theory of change. You can't bottle it. You can't put it in a can and and unleash it on a poor person at work. It's not like that. But there is a general flow, a general way that God seems to work in the world. And it seems like it'd be good to get on board with him because he wins. So it's trying to communicate what does God's theory of change generally look like. And then the 20 ministry design principles are basically 20 ways that a ministry can apply God's theory of change in the design of the ministry. And we don't claim these are exhaustive. We don't claim that it's everything, but it's at least 20 guideposts. And so the hope is that financial supporters could pick up the book Becoming Whole, pick up the field guide, and use that to shape their giving, but also use it in dialogue with the ministries they're giving to, not as a weapon, the Chalmers Center isn't doing all the 20s ministry design principles properly either. And I'm not living them all right in my own life. And so it's, don't use this as a weapon. Use it more as a framework for dialogue, a framework for, gee, could, maybe we could start to move just a little more in this direction. That kind of a thing. I really believe we've got to start moving in tune with how God works in the world. And most of us aren't functioning out of that very well. Yeah, I'm curious. You don't have to go through all 20, but I'm curious if you can give an example, you know, a couple of principles of, especially for, I think that's really profound what you're saying. And we've actually heard many people on this podcast say a very similar kind of sentiment in maybe a less structured way, but the idea of seeing where God is and how he's working and trying yeah. to come beside that. Yeah. So let me just give you a quick example. Let's imagine that you are a financial supporter and somebody presents you with the following grant proposal. A ministry is doing microenterprise training with very poor people in Kenya. And the way they're doing it is that you get a group of, let's say, 12 low-income people together and you walk with them over the course of time through a curriculum that teaches them small business practices and principles. Well, the ministry, this is all hypothetical, the ministry experiments with the use of cell phones and realizes that you can actually communicate that information via cell phones so that people don't have to show up for the group meetings anymore. And you can cut your costs substantially because you don't have to have staff facilitating a group meeting or not anymore. The poor people can stay in their businesses. The information comes to them over their cell phones. They don't ever have to come to the group meeting anymore. And you can cut your costs by 50%. And so the ministry comes to you as a donor and says, would you fund the expansion of our cell phone technology so that we can dispense with group meetings 
and we can cut our costs by 50%. Well, that grant proposal is one of several that I often pose to financial resource partners, and they love that one. They love that one because it's very efficient. You can cut costs, right? Well, the problem is that God has wired us for relationship. And what's going on in the Garden of Eden is that Adam and Eve are living in deep communion with God and with others. And it's out of the deep community in the Garden of Eden, out of the deep communion with God and with others, that God gives humanity the task of being fruitful and multiplying, increasing in number and subduing the earth. So the community provides the foundation for work. Community precedes action. Community precedes work. The fall happens and community is broken. Community is broken with God. Community is broken with others. Adam and Eve flee from God. Adam blames Eve. Our relationship with God is broken. Our relationship with others is broken. Thorns infest the ground. Relationship with creation is broken. The whole story of scripture is how to recover Eden. It's how to get back to the dwelling place of God. The image in Revelation 21 is this, that when Christ comes again, there's a new creation. And what do we see in that new creation? The first thing we read is, now God is dwelling again amongst his people. It's the restoration of Eden. It's the restoration of community of God with people. The foundation for being is community. Well, every donor I know wants to blow community apart with cell phones. So there's just one example. We are functioning out of a theory of change that's more reflective of a Western individualism than of a proper understanding of what a human being is. Guys, you can use cell phones sometimes. There's a lot of nuance here. But the point is we tend to function out of the wrong story. It's a story of Western civilization that's highly individualistic, highly materialistic. Once you adopt the right anthropology, it completely changes how you design your ministries and your programs. It changes what the goal is. It changes how you achieve the goal. And most of us are not, I'm not in my daily life functioning out of the right story of change. I'm trying to rediscover it. I'm trying to recover it in my own life because I've been enculturated into the wrong story by living in America. This is real light stuff. (laughs) (laughs) But the good news is there's a better story. There's a better story for the poor, and there's a better story for us than the story of the American dream of highly individualistic, highly self-centered, highly materialistic existence. That's not what we're made for. That's not what flourishing is. It's not good for anybody. It's not good for poor people. It's not good for us. We've got to find a better story. Sorry I'm preaching. I get too excited about this. <laughs> well, Brian, I can think of several examples that I've observed or seen in my life that looking back under this framework, maybe relief was being provided where development was more appropriate. And I'm wondering if a well-intentioned person or even organization is maybe causing more harm than good, how can you respond to that? So the first thing you do is you respond out of relationship, right? Nobody's going to listen to somebody pointing fingers at them. It's all about relationship. That's what we're wired for. It's the trust in relationship that enables us to speak hard truths to one another. If that's not there, you can't do it. So it's about relationship. It's about walking together. It's not about screaming at people. It's not about pointing fingers at people. It's about walking together. And it's about walking together in mutual brokenness. 
I mean, good grief, guys. 90% of the stuff I'm talking about on this thing with you tonight, I'm not doing very well. So I'm not really in a position to be saying, oh, look at you over there. At the Chalmers Center, they joke, they call me Dr. Relationship because I'm a relational theorist. I don't actually want to have any. And so, so <laughs> I'm not that good at what I'm talking about. And so it's more of a posture of the fall happened, I'm broken, you're broken. And so it's that posture of humility, that posture of coming alongside and then it's sharing my own mistakes. It's sharing, hey, when helping hurts is full of things I've done wrong. It's partly because we just need good examples, but it's partly to say to the audience, dude, I'm messing this up. It's a chill out. We're all in this together. None of us are that great. Let's just get over ourselves here a little bit. So it's that posture of safety. And then you just look for opportunities to speak truth, maybe ask some questions gently. What do you think success here would look like? What do you think success would look like here? You know, so we're ministering to Joe. What would success look like for Joe? What would God's story for Joe be? What does God design Joe to be, do you think? Hmm. Does it seem like what we're doing is helping Joe be that? Does it seem like we are going to be coming whole that God has wired us to be priest rulers, to extend his reign and his worship from the Garden of Eden through all of creation? So when Joe walks into our church asking for help with his electric bill, God's design, God's plan for Joe is to be restored as a priest ruler. It's so interesting. First Peter says, you're the royal priest of the holy nation. We get our jobs back. Revelation chapter 5. They shall be kings and rulers over the earth and new creation. God's plan for Joe is to restore him as a priest ruler who extends the reign and worship of God to the whole earth. That's God's story for him. Is our ministry helping that happen? Do we see Joe looking more like that after a decade or not? Or is Joe coming for handouts after a decade? And so it's it's asking some questions. What's God's design for Joe? Are we accomplishing that here? How could we adjust it more to help Joe be what God's called him to be? Stuff like that. But in the context of relationship, (laughs) some ministries have told us that, you know, they hate seeing the financial resource partner walking the door with one helping hurts under their arm because they're like, oh, here they go. Here we go. All right. You know, and people like they're all afraid of me. Like I walk into ministry. Oh, here's the one helping hurts guy. He's going to tell us what's wrong. I don't know what <laughs> it's not like that. It's just figuring it out together. Yeah, I like that. And just like everything else we've talked about tonight, it all comes down to relationship and God has designed us for relationship. I think you're exactly right on that. Let me add one more thing there, because this is my chance to talk to financial resource partners. Every nonprofit ministry is terrified of the financial resource partners. We're all terrified of them. So you need to know that when you walk in the door, no matter how we act, deep down in us, there's sheer terror going on. Because most of us don't know how to run organizations, and we know we don't. So we're all feeling insecure about our lack of managerial abilities. And we all know that you all think you know how to run things better than we do. And you probably do. But we also think that you don't really understand ministry. We're all terrified about our ineptitude. But we're also terrified you're going to impose your story on us and on poor people that we don't believe in. And you have the lifeline for us financially. So we're all sitting there petrified. Oh, my word. They're going to find out that we really stink at this. And they're going to think they're better managers than we are. And they probably are. But we don't really think they know what they're talking about either. And we need their money. And it's, it's a horrible captivity. It's sin. All, the whole thing is fraught with sin. And so just know that everybody's terrified. And so the only way to really affect change 
is to come alongside of the ministries and organizations and be a friend and let them know that you're going to be there once you find out the dirty laundry. That they can tell you, the ministry can tell you where they stink and you're going to come back the next day and still be there. That's what you have to do. Honestly, it's a lot like another layer to the ministry and the community that they're ministering to in the donor ministry relationship as well. It's about totally coming in and really enabling them to use the assets and knowledge and experience they have to do the best possible work that they can. And you just go in as learners. Use an asset-based approach. Go into the ministry and say, hey, teach me. I'm a vice president of a bank, but I don't know anything about poor people in a slum in Kenya. Teach me. Just take a learning posture and learn and let the ministry people be the experts for a while. And they have expertise. They know stuff you don't know, but you know stuff they don't know. But earn the right to be heard. God has brought into my life a number of business people who, quite frankly, have saved the Chalmers Center and saved me. It takes a while to build up trust. It takes me believing they're going to be there the next day when they see the dirty laundry. Yeah, I think that's very powerful. It just really changes the whole dynamic of that relationship. So, you know, as we are getting towards the end here, I'm curious, there's so much that you have done over the last couple decades in building out this framework and sharing that with others. What are you looking forward to on the horizon? What are you excited about coming down the line? Yeah, I'm having a lot of fun right now. So we wrote this book, Becoming Whole, the Associated Field Guide. And the basic message here in these books is most of us are living into the wrong story and that we need to live into the right story. And the right story is the coming of of God's kingdom. Jesus says in Luke chapter 4, verse 43, I've come to preach the good news of the kingdom of God. That's why I was sent. And so when Christ bursts from the tomb 2,000 years ago, he's got a new resurrection body. And the new creation actually dawns in Christ 2,000 years ago. And so most of us are sitting around like, gee, I wish something good would happen. Well, the good thing happened 2,000 years ago already. And we're supposed to be living into that story. And most of us are kind of going, Jesus died on the cross to save me from my sins. And I'm trusting in him for my salvation. And so I'm going to get to go to heaven. My soul can go to heaven when I die. Well, then what? The alarm clock goes off on Monday morning. Well, then what? The church hasn't given us a very good story for that. But Jesus does in the Bible. Jesus says we're new creatures in Christ, that we're already living into the new creation. The Bible actually says I'm a new creature. It's not just that I've got my legal problem solved before a holy and righteous God, as important as that is. I was this kind of a thing. Now I'm that kind of a thing. I was this kind of creature. Now I'm that kind of a creature. And what is that new creature? It's a creature that's already participating in the new creation. I've already got a new creatureliness in me. And I'm united to Christ. Ephesians chapter 1 says, means I'm seated in the heavenly realms with Christ right now, reigning over all things. Well, boy, I don't know when the alarm clock went off this morning. I didn't act like I was reigning over anything. I acted like I want to go back to bed. But the story of Scripture is the new creation is dawned. And so I get to live into this new creation. Well, what does that look like? Well, we don't know exactly. So the Bible gives us some hints, some guidelines. We know some features about the new creation, but we don't know what it all looks like. So we've got to improvise it. We've got to make it up. And so we've got to ask the question, if Jesus were to come again right now 
in my neighborhood or in that village, what would it look like? And God has called us to lean into that. And so what we're doing right now at the Chalmers Center is we've launched a training process called Innovate. And it's basically saying what I just said to you theologically, here's who we are. Now let's creatively imagine what the kingdom should look like here. And so what we've done is we've taken God's story of change and integrated it with principles and tools from the field of innovation, from design thinking. And we're now training churches and ministries all over the world to create their own ministries, to create their own ministries that that go with the flow of God's story. And so we're seeing people do creative things they've never done before in villages and in cities all over the world. And so I'm enjoying right now that process of taking God's theory of change, intertwining it with tools from design thinking, and walking with churches and ministries as they create and improvise God's story. I'm having a lot of fun. Yeah, that sounds amazing. I'm excited to see what comes out of that. We started piloting this. We have different levels of it, different levels of complexity. We started piloting it in in villages in rural Togo. So Togo is in West Africa. Togo's at the bottom of everything. And if you look at, you sort of like, you know, look up things to see and do in Togo. It's not exactly the tourist center of the world. The only thing that shows up to see in Togo is the fetish market where you buy fetishes to ward off the evil spirits. So, I mean, that's the primary tourist attraction in Togo is the fetish market. And so there's nothing happened in Togo, right? So I mentioned earlier this idea of savings and credit associations. We've helped churches in rural Togo in villages to start these savings and credit associations. Well, now we brought in this innovate process. And so we've gone to these savings groups. We've said to these very poor people, be who you are. God has restored you as image bearers. He's called you to live into his creation. How could you love on your own community? How could you creatively design something that you could do to love on your community and show them the realities of the creation bursting forth in you. These savings groups are in churches. So one of these savings groups in this church said, all right, we're going to take our own resources and our own time, and we're going to go out and start to repair the roads. They're about an hour drive off the paved road. I've actually been to this church. They're an hour drive off a paved road. You've got to go through this dirt road, and there's potholes, and there's snakes, and there's it's just a disaster. So they said, let's go out and let's start repairing our road. So they go out there, they start repairing the road. Well, the whole village comes out and says to them, what are you doing here? And they said, well, we serve a king, King Jesus, and King Jesus wants us to take care of his creation. And so we're not going to wait for anybody else to repair the roads. We're going to repair the roads ourselves. The whole village said, well, we'll help you. So the whole village is following this church now. They're out there repairing the roads using their own resources and doing their own time. Their sweat's pouring off of them. There's a witch doctor from a neighboring village who's watching this. And he comes up to them and says, I will donate land if this church will plant another church in my village, just like this one, to bring this king and his message to my village. When witch doctors are offering land for church planting, <laughs> it's a good day at the office at the Chalmers Center. So, so we were doing that. We, we were experimenting with that in West Africa, and then COVID hit, and we couldn't get back there to continue testing it. So we said, oh, let's just try doing this online. So we started teaching it online, and so that's a higher-level curriculum. But So right now, actually in two weeks is our next class, 
we're doing it online, and we didn't think we could do it online, but we are, and it's working. And so, craziest thing. So, the last time we taught it, there was a ministry in rural Kentucky that's working in a trailer park with poor people. They're taking it, and they were in a group with a team from Bethlehem, the one with the manger, not, not Bethlehem, Pennsylvania, <laughs> the one with the manger. So you got these dudes in Bethlehem, these people in rural Kentucky, who are all going through this design process together to figure out how to love poor people in their communities online. This is a lot of fun. Wow, that is really exciting. I love hearing stories like that, and I can't wait to see how all of these initiatives bear fruit in the coming years. As we get towards the end of our episode, though, I do want to leave a little bit of time for our manager's minute. And for our listeners, as we seek to manage God's wealth wisely, we like to end every episode with a practical action that our listeners can take to do just that. So, Brian, do you have a quick suggestion for how people can be using any financial margin they have to serve their communities, advance the gospel, and build God's kingdom? I have two ideas. So I've got two manager's minutes. So the first is the Chalmers Center equips churches, ministries, and financial supporters in more effective strategies of poverty alleviation. We would love it if some of our listeners today were able to get behind the Chalmers Center's ministry. That's one idea. That's completely self-serving. The, well, it's not just that. I believe that God's using the Chalmers Center. So, but another one that's kind of a fun idea, I think, is I mentioned earlier, Becoming Whole and the Associated Field Guide actually were initially supposed to be written for donors, for financial resource partners. And we still think it's very useful for that. Essentially, Becoming Whole and the Field Guide are trying to help financial resource partners and ministries to get on the same page about what is God's theory of change. And we are starting to see financial resource partners using these materials. The National Christian Foundation has become quite interested in them. And so we're actually working on a project right now to kind of distill it down, because it's kind of long right now, to kind of distill it down to some short videos that teams or groups of financial resource partners could work through and answer some questions and, and think. But in the meantime, just start a reading group and read through some of these materials together and start to chew on what could this mean and how could you as financial resource partners help the space of poverty alleviation to flow more consistently with God's story. The truth of the matter is if the financial resource partners don't change, nothing's going to change. We need the financial resource partners to have a different way of viewing this space. So a reading group. Do a reading group. And I'm so glad that you guys have put that together. I think that there's actually a significant lack of resources for people to be able to understand how to give well and how to give in a holistic, complete view of both the physical and spiritual together that we've talked in the ins and outs of that in so many ways on this podcast. And so I would encourage everybody to check out that resource just because there is not a lot of stuff out there like that. And so I'm excited to check that out myself. You know, Keelan, sometimes I just mention, I'm sorry to interrupt you, but I want to just, you know, I alluded to this earlier. One of the major places where Satan has a foothold is in the relationship between the financial resource partners and the ministries. You know, I could go on for hours on this. There's so many dimensions to the dysfunctions in that relationship. And one of the principles that is in the field guide has to do with that relationship. And it talks about the sin on both sides of that dynamic. The sin, the part of the ministries that view the financial resource partners as just ATM machines that we 
can manipulate to get the money out. And we don't treat the financial resource partners as whole people. We don't treat them as people who have something to say, that they actually know things, and that they have something to contribute to the conversation. And so what we hope is that God will use this resource to help the ministries, the financial resource partners, and the materially poor to kind of get on the same page more and to kind of move forward together. And it's pretty idealistic, but the kingdom is idealistic. It really does try to speak into the nexus of this dysfunctional relationship. Brian, I did want to ask, where can people find some of these resources that you've been talking about, the books that you've mentioned, and just more information about the Chalmers Center? Yeah. So the Chalmers Center is a website. There's all kinds of information there. It's just Chalmers, C-H-A-L-M-E-R-S, Chalmers.org. And you just go there. There All the resources are there. The books are described there. There's all kinds of books there and training resources and our programs. Of course, the books are also available on Amazon and so on. But you can see kind of the resources all listed in one place there. We just hired a gentleman from a major Christian relief and development agency to be our vice president of financial stewardship. Maybe that's not the right name. He has a passion for changing how philanthropy, how the whole space is done. And we love his vision. And so pray for us and help us. Okay, so this brother, his name is Rob. He said, Brian, I can do fundraising. He said, but I want to be about the kingdom. He said, if I'm in charge of raising money for the Chalmers Center, I want to be able to go into every meeting with a financial resource partner and simply help them advance the kingdom. He said, I want my job description to have in it that I will raise money for other organizations as an employee of the Chalmers Center. That when I go into the meeting, the goal will be to help that financial resource partner to steward their wealth to advance Christ's kingdom And I would like measurement around my activities that says that when I help other organizations raise money, that I'm being successful in working for the Chalmers Center. I'm so all about that. That's the great, that's where it needs to go. It's about the kingdom. So the other day, we got an email from a, quite frankly, was a financial resource partner. I was a little confused and I could tell they were elderly and they were kind of saying they wanted to give some money for working in a particular state And they said, but if that doesn't work out, we want to give money to the Chalmers Center. Well, this guy said, I'm on it. He got on the phone with them, and he helped them find the right ministry to achieve their goals in that state. And Chalmers won't get a dime from it. That's the way it should work. That's how it should work. We need the financial resource partners to work differently and to help us as the ministries to work differently, because this is so dysfunctional right now. It's awful. We're not honoring our king this way. We've got to come together. Yeah, absolutely. And I think as ministries continue to develop their framework and really come back to what you were saying earlier about getting on the same page as what God is already doing and moving alongside God rather than trying to forge a new path ahead as that is perfected. And then on the other side, as givers do that exact same process of trying to come beside God and where he's working, then I think that's where you really achieve that perfect blend of, you know, an incredible synergy between the two is when both are aligned with what God is doing. That's it. I like to win. Well, I'm pretty convinced God's going to win this thing. So I want to get on board with his team. He's winning. Go with him. Yep. That's the way to do it. I love what you brothers are doing. This is such important ministry. 
Just keep doing this, guys. This is what's needed. Well, we joke all the time that we would do it if nobody listened, just because of the conversations we get to be a part of and all that God has changed and shaped in our own hearts, but the ability to be able to share that message and to really channel all these stories. Every story is a piece of God and how he is working to redeem his whole creation. And so by pulling all these stories together, we really hope to just see more of who God is and, and how he works. And so thanks for being with us tonight, Brian, and sharing what he's done through your life and all he has guided you in and the experience that he has brought you through. This has been a real blessing for us. Brothers, thank you so much for the privilege of being with you. And we're just all hanging on for dear life as God's doing his thing. It's really a fun. Amen to that. Hey, thanks so much for listening to the show, guys. If you have questions about setting a financial finish line, the finish line movement, or anything else you heard on the show today, we'd love to hear from you. But now a quick question for you. Do you know anyone who is living a life filled with generosity, purpose, and mission? If so, we'd love to talk to them. They don't need to have a financial finish line, and they don't need to have all the answers. Just a heart to steward God's wealth to the best of their ability. If you know someone like that, we'd be honored if you could connect us. You can reach us on Instagram at finishlinepledge, through our website at finishlinepledge.com, or by email at hello at finishlinepledge.com. Finally, if you want to find any of our references or links from today's show, you can always find them in our show notes at finishlinepledge.com slash episode 42. That's it for today. We'll see you next time.